You know, growing up with 10 older brothers and sisters gave me a sense of invincibility. Regardless of how much I was tormented by them at home, I always knew my siblings would be there when I needed them. Then one day when I was about 14, as I was riding my bike home from school, I got into a bit of a fight with an older kid. He had me pinned down on the grass when we both saw one of my brothers riding his bike up the hill towards us. Damien was stocky and strong and the school captain and I thought my saviour. So my persecutor and I were equally shocked when Damien rode past us without even blinking an eye. I watched him ride up and over that hill and disappear. I was gobsmacked, metaphorically and then as it happened, literally. When I got home, bloodied and bruised, Damien was relaxing with a Milo, watching the Kenny Everett show on TV. When I asked him why he hadn't stopped to defend me, he told me I needed to start looking after myself. But for my next guest, the opposite was true. Growing up in the notorious cult called The Family in the 1980s, Ben Shenton found his salvation through the brave acts of his older sisters who one day rode in to his rescue. The full story of the family is well documented in books and films, so I really wanted to talk to Ben about the relationships that were formed and fractured over those turbulent years. Welcome to My Fucked Up Family. Ben Shenton, thank you so much for joining us today. An absolute pleasure, Paul, for being given the opportunity. Hopefully the story being told will be of use. It's unusual. Yes, it is It is deeply unusual, I'd, I'd have to say, your story. But I guess where I wanted to start, Ben, is really if you could give us a description of who you are today. Okay, so I'm a married man. I've been married to the same lady for the last, what is it, going up to 28 years in September. I have a daughter who's 21, third year uni, my son's 18, first year uni are both doing well. Uh, I've worked a professional job at IBM for the last tw almost 23 years come June. Yeah, doing well in life um, and enjoying life. Life's been very good to me as I sit here at the moment, but yeah, I didn't start out that way. <laughs> Well, look, that's that's very interesting that you should put it that way because what I find extraordinary about your story, Ben, is the fact that looking at you today, you life seems pretty ordinary, ordinary in a good way, but yes. that's not how it started. And I find the fact of uh, thinking about where you've come from to where you find yourself now such an amazing transition. So do you want to... Go back then and tell us about your childhood. It's almost a question of where do I start in that childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in a place in Victoria, Lake Yildon. It is a holiday centre that is idyllic, probably one of the more beautiful pieces of Australia. This was very pretty and people would come up there on a holiday. We were on a five-acre piece of property um, surrounded by barbed wire fences. It was a two-storey wooden house with the entries point saying, trespassers keep out, you'll be prosecuted. And so what went on inside that property was a, a group of children who I believe to be my brothers and sisters. My mother um, claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. We're, we're back in the early 70s here. Very spiritual time in the world. You've got the Beatles, but by that stage had gone over over to India, meditation, 
LSD, people living in communes, the hippie movements, all of these sorts of things were almost mainstream. So the woman you're referring to is is Anne Hamilton Byrne, the leader of this cult, and the name of the group was The Family, correct? And it went by two names, Paul. So yes, it sort of settled on the name The Family, um, but originally it was called The Great White Brotherhood, which draws its roots directly out of the occult. So its roots are in that, and they then settled on the name of The Family. And how many people, when you were growing up in this group, how many people were, were in it, Ben? So at its peak, I guess, the property that I was on, um, we had up to about 28 children. Some mm. of those were called foster children um, because they were cult members' children that came and went and had a core group that she claimed to be her children or um, she was a grandmother of. And there were cult members that would come up and look after us. Um, and at its, in its, its epicentre was in the Dandenongs um, down in the southeastern part of Melbourne. And there would have been 400 to 500 people there. There was an outpost, it's probably the way to say, in Hawaii, um, another in America, and then another quite a major area there in England. Right. Um, down in Kent, which is probably, you know, 50 to 100 people. So dotted around the world, it wasn't huge, but very financially viable and very wealthy. And So you grew up with Anne as your mum, who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, and you grew up in this core group of about 28 kids. Anne and her husband, Bill, didn't spend a lot of time at your place, did they? No, they were based down... In the Dandenongs, on a street where most cult members lived and purchased property, and they would come up to Eildon, and we call the place Kailama, that was the name that was given, and also the concentration camp, perhaps several <laughs> names depending on, on where we were at. Right. And yeah, they, they would come and go. So Anne would spend time over in England, and so we would see her when she was in Australia, on the weekend, she'd come up on a Friday night. Um, she'd head back down Sunday night or occasionally Monday. Right, right, okay. So just describe to us then what your childhood was like. Give us a couple of examples of the sort of things you'd be doing day to day. Your standard day was we were educated seven days a week. Uh, up early, hatha yoga, meditation, and early is five o'clock in the morning sort of stuff, 530 the room that us boys would sleep in was the downstairs room that was originally a place where they pulled boats in and out of, so it was quite a large area that had been concreted, which had been carpeted for us. We'd push all the beds out to the side, hatha yoga and meditation was done in that. We'd then set it up for school, uh, remove all the beds and everything off to the side. We'd have all the school books, the trestle tables, chairs, breakfast, uh, schooling, play outside, Lunch, which was preceded with healthy, uh, with meditation, um, very much a vegetarian diet, to the afternoon, finish around 4.30 or so, showers, evening time uh, would be uh, dinner and then homework and then we'd, we'd slowly go to bed from youngest through to eldest and everyone would be shut down by about 9 o'clock. The aunts were scattered around the different rooms. Um, so so explain explain to us who, who the aunts are. Yeah, thank you for, for pulling me up. I have a bad habit of not explaining. 
these terms I'm so used to using. So these cult members um, that Anne drew out of disillusioned, and many of them are women, the vast majority wealthy, these people were pulled out of the intelligentsia and the disillusioned and those struggling with marriage issues and children that had died recently in an accident or illness that hit them. I mean, all throughout and drew on these people, drew them into her web of influence. So the people we called our aunties were cult members and they would spend two weeks in Melbourne, many of them nursing on and off. They worked for an agency. I mean, I look back retrospectively, Paul, and a very challenging demand on their lives. Exhausted, yeah. financially poor, and I'm, I'm not surprised at times they would snap. Yeah, right. And when you talk about them snapping, in, in, in what way would, would they do that? Um, yeah, all, all manner of stuff. So vitamin C gone missing one time. We were all given the different vitamins that Anne wanted us to, um, kelp, yeast, Vitamin E, vitamin C, and vitamin C were like lollies. Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna nice you're gonna steal you're gonna steal the vitamin C before you steal the kelp. I would have thought. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> any day. But in fact, the kelp and the yeast ended up being ferreted off into uh, an ottoman. <laughs> and eventually, when they <laughs> they had to eat stuff, that out came thousands of tablets. <laughs> so, and of course, there's too many in there for them to go. This person did it. Yeah, and right. So. So we were all lined up, um, eldest to youngest, beaten, and then our heads held in a bucket of water under it um, for about 20 to 30 seconds, head pulled out, did you do it, back in again several times, so you, you thought you were going to drown. So I guess you'd call that water torture. Mm. Mm. Um, quite terrifying, to say the least. I mean, it's obviously a very unusual and at times traumatic childhood, but I guess you didn't really know any other example. You were you were homeschooled, you'd been there all your life. You didn't know that there was a different world out there, I suspect. It was all we knew, um, very controlled. They controlled the information coming in and going out. Um, we went by the motto, unseen, unheard, unknown. So all the newspapers that were brought up that were part of educating us, they would go through and censor them. We'd literally have pieces cut out of them. That became normal to us. And then it slowly began to filter in. Um, you know, you can't keep everything out a little bit like you've got, you know, you've put the shades up on a on a window with paint and eventually the heat of what's outside begins to crack that paint and the light begins to filter in. So, so with all this going on, though, there had to be moments where you experienced playfulness and joy and laughter. Have you been reading my draft book, Paul? And the answer is no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but that, that, is, that is the reality. And so you take so many people that grow up in a traumatic environment a traumatic home, you know, it isn't 100% evil. Why is that the piece we remember and speak about? What tends to happen is you remember because it has such a huge impact on you of surviving through the difficult, you know, the dad coming home drunk and bashing your mum, the older brother who absolutely tormented you, uh, the school bully, all of these things get ran in there. But did that happen every day and every moment? No, it didn't. There were times of joy. There were, well, there were good times. And similarly for us, I mean, I'm remembering Christmases 
where they went absolutely all out, no expense spared, joy, happiness, waiting for Santa to come, did it all. We had the, the stockings there, the expectation of Santa arriving, unable to go to sleep, you know, of, of excited about it happening, the stockings full. Isn't that a bewildering contrast where they're, they're being so cruel and controlling yet they're allowing you all to believe in Santa Claus. Can you catch the irony? Yeah. It's it's the magic of that, that there is someone out there that cares, that's beyond the environment you're in, that they allow that. So what was interesting is that there was another time where the presents came late and only the the girls got it and ours came later. And then there was another time where Christmas came along and there were no presents. So it became very obvious very quickly to me that this was a charade, this wasn't real. Um, you know. So I guess it put into me, even though everyone says something's real and the narrative says it's real, you, you need to be careful because everyone can be on a lie. Mm, mm. Were there any other were there any other examples of, of um, or, or memories that you have that were were more positive Ben? Um, as well? Yes. Well yeah, it's, it's almost funny. I look back, we would have our hair blonde and with bleach every couple of weeks, just those events of going through and um, having that process. You look back as more one of the more bizarre events that probably wasn't funny, it wasn't dangerous. What was, the, what was the thinking behind the blonding of the hair? Well, so Anne had blondish hair. She had blonde wigs. Her daughter, Natasha, had... Uh, Blonde, uh, strawberry blonde, reddish hair. So some of them were left that, but the majority of us, she would have us our hair dyed blonde and certain type of cut and stuff to, to make it look like the family that yeah. she wanted. Yeah, right, right. Was actually in reality, she was creating her own world. Yeah, and- yeah, right. But but that world was about to come tumbling down, wasn't it, Ben? Because the police would eventually raid the family's compound at Lake Yildon. Uh, so what? led them to finally take action. As we got older um, and had a major problem of we were homeschooled but only up until year 10. So the challenge Anne had was then finishing off that education. So the solution for most of us boys was to send us overseas to boarding school. So that that was a path that she'd taken several down, and us younger ones, in fact, I was very close to going down that path. I was, and it happened when you turned 14 for a boy. But for the girls, what she decided with them was go to a correspondence school, and they would have to have a period of contact hours in an actual formal school. Um, now, two of these girls, Sarah and another one, the eldest one, Leanne, would form good friends with two individuals. Um, happened to be sisters, and eventually Anne allowed both Sarah and Leanne to go down and spend a weekend with them, which it, it suddenly opened them up. There's a world outside of what we'd grown up with where they could go and get food when they wanted to. They could catch a bus and watch a movie. They were allowed out of the house. They came back with there's a world out there that we want to be part of. And that really began to open that up. So Leanne attempted to run away when she was 16, went to one of the properties close by, um, which was a holiday home, as it were, all of them. She waited till it was holiday time, knocked on the door, 
told them the story. They rang the police. The police picked up this underage girl, as it were, took her back to concentration camp, as we called it. The aunt showed the scripts that she was on, like Actil, uh, Tegretol, all the other stuff, and said she's out of her mind. So she got sent back. A couple of years passed by. Leanne's now 18, has another massive blow-up, runs away, and ends up in the same house, same location, same people, same phone calls, same police, which is bizarre. Yeah. Um, but she's 18. At this point, they can't take her back to Eildon. They yes. have to let her go. She's on her own free yes. will. She's her own free will with no skills to survive. What then did she do to make sure the authorities knew what was going on? Well, that, and that's, she, I think most of her initial years was just done in trying to survive yeah. and function and get a job and get a house and make life work for her. And she spent time on the streets in a, in a, in a refuge with other girls that were very messed up, had no skill set to handle that. Um, eventually connected with Sarah, um, found her and ended up writing statements to the police. So it was very much um, Leanne, Sarah, going to the police and notifying them that that precipitated this. I I don't think I would ever have got out otherwise. Right. That's amazing. So I'm I'm in lifelong debt to them. Well, it's very brave of those girls. Very brave. Extremely. You know? Extremely. As I said, they're heroes to this day of mine. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised, mate. Leanne is one of the bravest people. Excuse me. She, she made that step. Yeah. Knew nothing. It scarred her to this day, but her boldness, her insistence, and then followed up by Sarah and, and Angie, they're heroes. Yeah, it's incredible, Ben. So, so the girls have taken this, this brave step and gone to the police, and that's really the beginning of the end for your childhood as you knew it. So, so tell us what happened uh, the day the police arrived. The day you were talking about, August 14, 1987, was the, the day in my life, as I'd known, it was turned upside down. And how did that day actually start for you, Ben? Yeah, caught up, went upstairs. We were doing our standard Hatha Yoga meditation, and by that stage, we were playing cards instead, which was standard procedure. We'd wait to hear the aunts tiptoe down and try and catch us and shove the cards under the beds and quickly assume the appropriate position um, <laughs> where, where we should be. And then suddenly we hear the running on the footsteps and, of course, all of us quickly shove the cards under the under the beds and assume the position and these strangers rock in. With 100 police, we're not talking just one turning up squad car. Uh, who, who are you? And then I think Sarah was there and Leanne, it's okay, it's okay, they're with us. And I remember fighting not to leave. We were downstairs, you've got the steps that lead you to the upper floor that is where the front door is. I've been led up there, I'm holding onto the banisters, not wanting to leave, I'm about to head overseas to go to boarding school, but my escape, and I'm I'm thinking that they're ruining my my escape route. Who are these people? And then registered, hang on, this this might be good. So I let go, get into the bus, we're all taken away and... I'm lying in bed in the Bankstreet unit that night after having been fed dinner and given jelly and ice cream, being able to wash the dishes, which was like, wow, am I allowed in the kitchen and to do this stuff? 
thought it was incredible and got told very soon, oh, you'll get over doing the dishes, and I can promise you that happened very quickly. But <laughs> it was pretty exciting then. I'm just thinking through the day, and as was standard practice, I'm checking out everything I said to all these strangers to whether I get into trouble or not, and then realising I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah, I, I guess that whole unseen, unheard, unknown thing. Yeah, and registering, Paul, I'm free. Yeah. I, yeah. I could be free. This this could be good. So 7.30, August the 14th, 1987 was probably the moment. That was when the prison doors opened. Yeah, but it also opened a can of worms, really, didn't it? Because the authorities are now presenting you with documents that show Anne isn't actually your mother. Now, can you imagine? I'm 14 years old. My birthday is August the 30th with a twin. Okay, that's what I've grown up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get pulled out of the cult. They sit me down. Very quickly get told about all of the depot changes. Um, so they lay out in front of me my birth certificate, Andrew Bellman Shenton, um, born Joy Ethel Shenton, father Peter Shenton. Uh, okay. So anyone around 40 to 50 could be my mother. Yeah. So it's the world suddenly opens up. Who is this person? What could life be like? What did I miss down? I mean, all of those sorts of things that, are, that an adopted child and many people listen to this will dial into this and go, yeah, I know what you're talking about. But then, they then show me another deep pole change, which is not just my name, but my mother's name. It shows a transference from joy Ethel Shenton to Oma Hamilton Byrne. So she's changed her name to make it look like a Hamilton Byrne mm-hmm. and then changed my name to Benjamin Saul Hamilton Byrne. So that's the second document. So that then is the name I've grown up with, Benjamin Saul Hamilton Byrne. Then they show me a third one, changing their names from Peter Shenton to John Trevelyan and her name from the Oma Hamilton Byrne to Joy Trevelyan. So I had grown up knowing Joy as Auntie Joy, who looked after Anne's property where she lived at Wimborough um, for at least 10 years, when Anne would go back on a Monday and promise us that we could spend a week with her, one or two of us, she'd ring up Auntie Joy, and Auntie Joy would say to her, no, I don't want them there, they're going to mess the place up, don't bring them. So I naturally had a hatred for her. Right. Um, So that, that was... Not a very comfortable experience finding that out. That was a shock. That was, they talk about winning the lottery. What's the exact opposite <laughs> is what it felt like. The world dropped out from underneath me. Oh, you, could, you are kidding me. This woman? Of all the people. Individual? Isn't it funny that your curiosity just expanded and just thought the possibilities of who my mother could be are just so broad. And yet yes. the truth of it was so much closer to home. Yeah, and, and look, Paul, to make matters worse, I mean, if, if that had been left alone, okay, enough. But I mean, shortly after, I get a phone call from Joy, you know, um, the conversation sort of very stilted to start with, and then she delivers this line, um, you're an embarrassment to me, don't bother turning up on my doorstep. If you ever do, I'll slam the door in your face. Um, and that was pretty much the end of that. And then both... Time moves on. I eventually, the city the community service of Victoria gets in contact with my actual blood relatives. Um, I have a, Joy had three sons 
um, before she sacked off what had been a de facto relationship with John Jerome. And um, I ended up meeting the youngest one of those three brothers, Steve, contacted um, Joy and just said, what's going on? Where's he turned up to? We thought you'd sent him overseas because he had a club foot. That was the story he gave us and was living with adopted parents over there. Really? Um, and yeah, yeah, that's, that's what my family had been told, um, which is never, clearly not the truth. I've run marathons on these feet. <laughs> So de- definitely not the case. There's no scars. <laughs> All good. So, um, yeah, a, a fabricated lie. And But why did she, why did she, um, why did she take exception to you, Ben? Well, that was direction for me. And I extracted a promise out of Joy that she would never have any physical contact with me when I was handed over at 18 months. Right. Um, and Anne was and Joy was asked to look after her property as a caregiver. Those are the conditions. Give me your son. Um, I'm the reincarnation of Jesus. I will give him an idyllic upbringing. And Joy had been at, at Eildon um, prior to that. He saw it as a beautiful place. Um, thought that Anne could do the very best. Um, was a wealthy Jewish woman. Could, so, you know, so, 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 just explain to me then. So, you you find your real mum isn't Anne Hamilton Byrne, as you'd been led to believe, and through the the various paper trails you discover that your real mum is one of the aunties that you've known all your life. So how did the adoption come about? Why did your mum give you to Anne? So great question there, Paul. Um, Anne... Plan was to take a group of children that only she knew where they would come from, who they'd be born into, where to get them, and she would build this this group that she could specifically train and prepare for the time when that great apocalypse happened, nuclear warfare, whatever it would be, and we would be presented as the saviors of the world. So I was handpicked, and I wouldn't say adopted. My name was changed to appear as if I was, but I, there was no legal adoption going on. I was handed over to be one of these children. So from my mother's perspective, it was the greatest honour possible. Um, her son got picked by the reincarnation of Jesus to be one of the saviors of the world when the apocalypse happened. Tell me, so obviously when when you first discovered that Joy was your mum, that was a difficult path, but now you've got a relationship with her. What is that like? Okay, well, it's... it's it started, you talk about bizarre. So I have a great relationship with my grandmother um, who passed away of 105, I think it was 2013, um, and would go when I lived in Ballarat. She went down in a suburb in Brighton by that stage in assisted care before she went into a nursing home for the final couple of years. And just a beautiful woman. And I have very fond memories of, of her Um and the family and stuff. So I would visit her, um, you know, at least four or five times a year. Uh, the holiday season comes around, it's around Christmas, uh, and, and we took a trip down. By that stage, I've been married for uh, probably 16 or so years from memory. Um, I think my son would have been maybe three, my daughter would have been seven, and we rock up to see my grandmother, Violet. Um, and 
Joy's visiting from overseas. She's come in to see, stay with Anne up at the Danny Mums and got a hire car and come down to visit her mum. And Anne, I, I, I meet her. Hello, Ben. I know who she is. I'm Joy. I'm like, I haven't talked to you since that phone call and I've only met you twice before then. Mm. Um, this is bizarre. But what my mum worked out, this was a chance meeting that she hadn't orchestrated, she hadn't set up and she hadn't violated her promise to Anne. Mm. So I think this was her way of beginning to connect. Um, I, I said to her mum, if this is going to work as time went by, we have to be honest with each other, with what we're thinking, what we're feeling. I'm going to tell you what went on. Um, I'm going to challenge your worldview. Um, you know, probably going to be the other way. And we began having discussions. Times moved on with my mum. She came over here, spent time with me for two weeks, which she never did before. And we went and visited my brothers, um, went to see Anne. It would have been 2012. Took a trip up to Lake Elden with her. So, yeah, it's, it's over the years, it's, it's settled into a genuine warmth, a love, um, a care, um, to the level at which she's able to process that. Because you think of it, Paul, she's, she's been ripped off. Um, she's, she's, she's connected her caboose, as they say, to the wrong train. Yeah, it's yeah. gone to the wrong station. Yeah, right. And so in, in that, I, I, you know, everyone, everyone deserves, excuse me, Everyone deserves a second chance in life with empathy and understanding, not excusing the delusion, not excusing them of the decisions they've made that have hurt. That has, that's what a relationship does. It looks past the frailties. It looks past the stupid decisions. It doesn't excuse them, but it sets them free of the debt that they have to you. Wow. Oh, Ben, credit, credit to you, mate, for being able to move on with such grace. Um, it's been fascinating finding out more about the family story. Um, so th thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Great opportunity. I hope it's useful to um, your, your listeners. Oh, look, I'm um, sure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate Thanks, Ben. Time. You look after yourself. All right. We'll talk to you Bye later. Bye now. If you want to know more about the story of the family, check out Rosie Jones's documentary. And I hope you liked this episode enough to like, share and subscribe. And if you have your own family fiasco you'd like to share, get in contact with me through our Facebook page. Until next time on My Fucked Up Family.